Hey guys, Sam Mellinger here with another episode of Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears. Thanks to everybody who's been listening along the last month or two, and thanks to everyone finding us and giving us a shot for the first time. Baseball's on my mind. You probably saw where the owners are delivering a proposal to the players this week about how games can be held. And if you want to get in the weeds about the safety safety protocols, it's it's really interesting and, and pretty extensive. I wrote a column that should be on the website now. I hope you check it out, but uh, not as much as I hope the owners and players don't screw this whole thing up. But anyway, uh, just the talk of these games coming back means my thoughts are sort of hijacked. You know, I'm like I, I miss baseball desperately and you know not just because it's a major part of my job I mean I miss it for a million reasons and the more that I was thinking about that today I just thought I'd list 10 here you know the the caveat is that I'm narrowing the list down to what we'd have if games were played without fans right so this means you know some stuff that's specific to being at a ballpark can't be on the list you know like (laughs) the tater tot nachos at Kauffman Stadium or you know just dumping peanut shells on the ground or you know I've always thought like when you're watching a baseball game game uh you have conversations that you would never have anywhere but a ballpark i I really miss that part you know and that's not just for me like you know with my weird job like the first time that i hear rusty coon say what up player i always know that it's baseball season and that that won't come for a while but you know the the list here is just stuff that we can see when games come back on tv without fans okay ryan and hud and joel I know I can't see this entirely objectively. Um, I consider all those guys friends, but I do believe they do a good job and an honest job on the broadcast. And, you know, like I'm looking forward to the first time HUD screws something up and feels terrible about it. And then Ryan rubs it in. Those are the best. Modesty's talent. Uh, he's going to be 25 in July, you know, so he look, he's not old by any stretch, but he is past the point where youth can be an excuse. And this is interesting and it's been on my mind. You know, he, he's getting into his arbitration years. And I've heard some of the game mention that once the money starts getting real, you know, you see some guys alter their approach and sort of grow up. And, you know, Mondesi has the talent to be one of the best players the Royals have ever had, but it's got to turn into consistent production. I think it can happen this year. Okay, Sal Perez playing again. Here, look, this part is going to be an unpopular take, but I think Sal was severely underrated early in his career. And at some point, he kind of became overrated, at least locally, and looked like he's a very good catcher. Like, don't get me wrong, but he struggles getting on base, you know, is not what you'd love as far as, like, game calling. The framing numbers are consistently bad. But, look, all that said, he's an absolute joy to watch. You know, he has this sort of, like, relentless optimism that he brings to every plate appearance and, you know, the energy behind the plate. I'm looking forward to seeing that again. Jake Junis' slider, you know, maybe you would choose Josh Stomont's fastball, but, you know, I think Junis' slider might be the single best pitch on the Royals roster. It's it's always been interesting to me that he'd never thrown that pitch until I think it was double A, but if I'm off on that, it just, it's still, the point is, you know, the single biggest reason that Jake Junis has a chance to be a good starter was not on the Royals' radar when they gave him, you know, $600,000 to buy him out of a basketball scholarship in high school. So I'm also looking forward to the cameos from the opponent. You know, like, I adore Francisco Lindor. You know, I want to see more of the White Sox young core. The Twins have some young arms that are interesting. You know, a better look at the National League Central if they do, you know, the schedule, you know, sort of weighted that way. You know, Kristen Yelich is one of the game's best players. Uh, Javi Baez is a, a fun watch. Joey Votto, he's getting older. Uh, had a bad year last year, but he's still one of those rare guys, you know, that like every single opponent respects and looks up to. Whit Merrifield, 
Look, um, I'll admit it. In the beginning, I wondered if he was sort of a short-term flame-out, you know, kind of a fluke, a little like Bob Hamlin-ish, if you will. Because, you know, when when he got called up, he did not have near the pedigree of some of those Royals past stars. But, um, you know, holy crap. I mean, he is just so consistent, so tough. Uh, I mean, he's on a path that's going to put him in the Royals Hall of Fame someday. I also am looking forward to, like, the crazy stuff that you can't imagine happening. I don't know how many of you guys have been reading along. Jason Stark has been doing a, a really interesting series on this kind of thing in The Athletic. You know, he had, like, the time someone hit a home run but didn't score a run, the time someone stole first base. <laughs> uh, it reminds, Like, I remember as a kid, the first time I saw one of those hard grounders up the middle get stuck in a pitcher's glove, you know, like in the webbing, and he just throws the whole thing over to the first baseman. Like I, I know now that that kind of thing happens every once in a while, but you know, no sport, it seems like, breaks up the spaces of stillness with bursts of incredible, uh, quite like baseball does. I can't wait for that. Alex Gordon's footprints outside the on-deck circle and you know, like I don't literally mean like I want to see like these shoe shaped patches of dead grass, but what I mean is like just all the subtle familiarities, right? Like I hope they still play the walk up songs. I hope we can still hear Mike McCarthy's voice in the background. I hope we can still see Gordon like subtly roll his eyes, but not say a word on a bad strike call or, you know, blow a bubble while he's making a diving catch, those kinds of things. Jorge Soler, he is my kindergartner's favorite player. Because when we splurged for good tickets once last year, he hit one. You remember where that truck was, you know, in left field? He hit one, like, damn near there. It was pretty remarkable. You know, and and the kids, like, look, you know the names, you know, Singer, Coar, Lynch, on and on. The Royals had always targeted this to be the year those guys would debut in Kansas City. And, you know, it's the middle of May. This is the time of the season that those decisions might start to be made. But, you know, the timelines are different now, obviously. Like, everything's different. But, you know, with minor league baseball, you know, washed out, you'd expect to see these guys up sooner than later. Okay, guys, that's 10. I'm also curious about what you're looking forward to. I know I missed some because I changed my mind on this uh, a few times during the day. So I'm curious what you guys are looking forward to when baseball comes back. Let me know. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then get back with your questions. Hi, Sam. This is Charles calling in from Roland Park. Just wanted to see if we could get an official statement on where you stand with Arby's Fishgate. It's been tearing my family apart. All right, thanks. Bye. Charles, thank you from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to answer this question and clear up any misconceptions that some of you might have. I know that there have been some lies, some slander thrown my way from the mainstream media to try and portray me as a fish, Arby's fish eater. I just want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. I haven't eaten Arby's in many years after I heard an urban legend that turned out to not be true, but I can't get past it and will never go back, even as much as I love their curly fries and their apple turnovers. I'm not against fast food. I want you to know that. I will stand for the number 11 from Wendy's. It's delicious. You should try it. Anything from Taco John's, Winstead's, Good Sense, Quick Trip, if that counts as fast food. Um, you know what? It's kind of all fast food right now, right? Um, curbside delivery. Um, although a lot of restaurants seem to screw up curbside orders, but that's okay. We're all trying. But again, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to clear this up. I am not an Arby's fish eater. Never have been. Never will be. Do not believe the lies from the mainstream media. Thank you. Let's talk about the Chiefs. 
Sam, hi. My name is Brian. I'm calling from Columbia, Missouri. Uh, my question is, uh, they had the replay of uh, the uh, Super Bowl on TV a couple weeks ago, and uh, I what I took away from it was uh, that uh, the 49ers seemed really, really confident, uh, uh, and they were, you know, there was one time, I think, where uh, Williams ran for an 11-yard gain, and the San Francisco 49ers D-back had to make the tackle. And he was, you know, celebrating as if he was just given the MVP of the game. Um, and I felt like that, uh, you know, the Chiefs, kind of more a reflection of uh, Andy Reid's personality and, and they stay composed. Uh, and the 49ers put a lot, of, not just the big pose at the end there with the picture before the game was over with, but throughout the entire game. And so my question is, uh, do you did you get that same sense and did you feel like that somehow they kind of have this entitled uh, kind of um, attitude and furthermore, um, do you think that it was made the victory for the Chiefs even better? Because I personally do. I enjoyed watching them celebrate throughout the game as if they knew the outcome was inevitable. And eventually the Chiefs came out on top, and it was just I, – I thought it put a, a nice little you know, icing on the cake, so to speak. So anyhow, uh, I was just wondering if you got the same sense of, you know, that the 49ers really seem to be kind of poor sportsmen, basically, and they kind of deserve to lose. Anyhow, thanks. Well, yeah, Brian, the 49ers were definitely cocky. And and that scene that you talk about that you reference of, like, the entire team, it seemed like, posing in the end zone with, like, 10 or 11 minutes left, like it's a, a magazine shoot. Uh, I mean, that's going to live forever, right? Like, nothing gets on the Internet and just goes away. And they're going to have to live with that. I do think, however, that if you're going to be turned off by cocky teams or, or you know, teams that celebrate – uh, I'm not sure that you can throw stones from Chiefs Kingdom, as it were. Um, you know, I think the Chiefs are one of the celebratingest, you know, cockiest teams out there. And, you know, obviously for good reason, they won the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, you don't think that there's guys on the other side that, you know, every time Mahomes flexes his arms or, uh, you know, every time Tyreek Hill does the deuces, uh, every time Travis Kelsey does just about anything, Tyron Matthew points at his head. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, of of celebration that, you know, borders, if not lives in arrogance on the Chiefs side. Um, I love it. I want to be clear, like this is not any sort of criticism. I love it. I think that um, it, it's part of what makes sports fun. You know, you've probably heard me say I think baseball needs a hell of a lot more of it, you know, maybe now more than ever. But it's just, um, I mean, I get what you're saying, you know, celebrating too early, you know, and again, that magazine pose um, in the end zone was was probably a bridge too far or whatever. But, um, you know, everybody celebrates. Every team that lost a, a game in the NFL last year had some moment of celebration. So I, I don't think that's a big deal, uh, particularly for the players. But I certainly get why Chiefs fans, you know, may even have that that picture of the 49ers. I, I can't get that out of my head. You know, just print that out and put it above your fireplace or above the bar in your basement or whatever, because that, that is pretty classic. Hey, Sam. Calling because you're looking for help with your Mellinger Minutes. My name is Mike, and I'm curious. Do you think that Patrick Mahomes can take on that Michael Jordan killer 
mentality and still remain a likable and affable quarterback in the NFL? Or do you think that you have to have that killer mentality to be as successful as MJ was or as Brady was? That's all I got, buddy. I'm going to clock out now from doing your job. Take care. Love your stuff. See you later. Uh, Mike, thank you. You put in a, a fine day's work, uh, as far as I'm concerned, so you're free to go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, you know, a lot of the sort of biggest winners uh, in professional sports that we've seen have, you know, developed this reputation, and most of it's earned, um, of just kind of being assholes. And I hope I can say that word on this podcast. Um, but I don't know that that's... A requirement you know what I mean like I, I do believe that a lot of people in sports and otherwise as well um, you know can be driven or benefit from personality traits that you would not want in your friend or your brother or your son or your daughter um, and I, sometimes those things can be positive and I think we're seeing that in the last dance of you know Jordan it may not be the way that you wanted to be led but you know he, he there was a, a method to the madness I guess you know he got results he did win um, and that's what he was about but I don't think that's a requirement and, and I'd go a step further and say that if that's not in your natural way um, if that's not who you are then trying to be that is a lie and and I think that people are going to see through that and so that to me is not Patrick. Um, you know, I mean, he's got an edge to him for sure. And, and he's not afraid to yell at guys. He's not afraid to get in them. And, and that's only going to grow as he gets older, you know, cause he's still younger than, than most of these guys. So when he's, you know, 28, 29, 32, 33, I mean, it's going to be a different way about him. I think we should expect that, but you know, you don't, there's more than one way to lead, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and Patrick seems to be, uh, with enthusiasm, it seems to be, um, you know, helping everybody along rather than dragging them along. Uh, it seems to be in uh, believing in them and and being a cheerleader for them. Uh, it seems to be in showing them that he's willing to do all the work and more that he's asking them to do. Uh, and as much as anything, honestly, it seems to be just like they all see his talent and they all know something different is possible. I, I keep going back to that, the Texans game in the playoffs. I mean, I, you know, down three touchdowns, I think that there's teams in the past with the Chiefs that just, they're going to pack it in then. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't mean to insult anybody that was on those teams, but, you know, they know that they can't come back from that. But I think those guys now, they look around, they like, we've got Patrick Mahomes, you know, like we can do this. We can, we've got this. And I think that is a really valuable trait as well. So, you know, look, like I, I just, I understand what you're saying that he doesn't seem to have sort of that Jordan ball in him. But I, I just, I don't think that that's the only way that you have to do it. Magic Johnson won a lot of games. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's only one way to do it. And I think, um, you know, Patrick, at least so far, is showing that his way works as well. Kane at first, 2 1 pitch. Slice foul. This one finds the upper deck. Two balls, two strikes. Pressure on Toronto. 
are down to their last three outs in a tie game. They lose. The season is over. Royals have a game in hand. Lined right field toward the corner. Fair ball. Kane around second. On his way to third. He's going to try to score. Here he comes. Throw. Not in time. lined it into right field toward the corner. Batista went over to dig it out. But Kane from first base scoring all the way. Hosmer ends up at first base. And this place is vibrating. That was the call from Denny Matthews. Uh, one of the most important and exciting plays in Royals franchise history. Caught up recently with the third base coach on that play, one of the, the men who absolutely needed to be there to, to make it possible, Mike Jershley. The conversation has been edited for brevity and clarity, and it's always good to hear Jersh's voice. Uh, I hope I get to hear it you know, at a baseball stadium soon. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the talk. Thanks. I appreciate your time. and uh, No problem. First, um, how are you doing? through all this. I'm I know you, you stay good. busy in the off-season anyway, but yeah, what, what what are you up to? Well, right now I'm out in my yard cleaning up the flower bed and stuff, yeah. which I never do usually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, just been working around the yard a lot and uh, working at the furniture store a little bit, just trying to keep busy. Hey, have you been watching these games? No, I haven't been able to watch him. Yeah, you might not even get Fox, Fox Kansas City where you are. Not Kansas City, no. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, it's been fun. Uh, I'm sure you're getting like texts and stuff like that, but um, was uh, <laughs> the the play that stands out is is one that that we've talked about before, and I know you talked about. But um, do you think of that play often? Uh, you know what I mean? Does it come to your head very often, or is it just kind of another one little part of a, a magic ride? Um, I don't know. I think about it once in a while. You know, when you start thinking about the six years I spent up there, and mm-hmm. you know that what I would have to say is one of the highlights of my, you know, time of being up there. Um, you know, especially in the situation that it happened, that you know, it wasn't just a you know, we were up by five or down by five and you did that. It's, you know, it was a tie ball game and the game was on the line and, you know, and everything worked out like we, we thought it would probably work out. So, I mean, it, it, it was such a wild play and, um, I, I think I know you well enough to know that you don't think about it in these terms, but that is as much of an impact as a third base coach can have i mean like in that situation with those stakes the prep work that you did to to figure that out the you know the communication with with all the guys uh i mean they just had to fill you with with so much pride well i don't know sometimes you get lucky sam yeah right (laughs) (laughs) but no yeah i mean it does it makes you feel good when it works you know if i'd have got him thrown out at home it would have been a different story but and that's the one thing to me that I've always loved about, you know, being a third base coach is, 
you know, you can be a big part of that game, you know, yeah. making decisions like that, when to take a chance, when not to, and, you know, just weighing all your options that you have and, and knowing that, you know, like as soon as Haas hit that ball, I knew I had Kane at first base, so I knew I had speed. Uh, if you remember, I think it was the night before or two nights before that, uh, we had the same type ball hit, but I had Morales coming in the third base and mm-hmm. I couldn't send them, you know. Sure. And, I mean, just remembering that, you know, putting that in your mind and keeping it in the back burner there that, hey, if this happens, you know, we got a shot if the guy can run from first. And as soon as that ball was hit, that's the first thing that popped in my mind was, hey, this could be the play right here, you know, where mm-hmm. you could end up scoring, you know, Lorenzo, as long as he keeps running. And I give him all the credit in the world right there because he got a good jump, good read, and and he was coming in full speed. So yeah. he gave me the opportunity to go ahead and send him. Yeah. Um, can you walk me through, like, how you guys got the intel that that – that the way that Batista played those balls would give you the chance uh, and, and sort of how you communicated that to the guys? Well, I'm pretty sure, and I can't even remember for sure, Sam, but I think it was brought up in our advanced meetings with the advanced scouts that he will try to throw guys out at second base, you know, on balls down the line. But mm-hmm. as, a, as a third base coach, I didn't even really need to know that because that's exactly what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see him come up, spin, and make a throw to second where there's no cutoff guy, it's going all the way in the second base, you know you have the opportunity to score that guy depending on who's coming in the third right there. Um, but it helps to have that in your mind that, hey, this guy will do it, you know. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you get caught and a guy never does it, and all of a sudden he does do it, and you go, oh, shoot, I held him too quick, you know, or things yeah. like that. So, But knowing that, you know, he will, and I saw him, that, you know, before that spin and throw it all the way to second base. Um, if you look at that play, Goings was in the right spot. If he comes up and just hits Goings, I can't send him, mm-hmm. you know, because he would have been out by a mile, but... Yeah, there's a great replay on uh, MLB.com that has uh, like kind of all the angles. And it looks like Kane was about halfway, maybe a little bit more than halfway between second and third when, when Batista threw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, <laughs> this is a weird thing because he's, again, he's scoring from first without running on the pitch. But is that that's an easy call for you at that point, isn't it? Yeah, that was, I mean, to me it was... I don't know. I felt it was a no-brainer. You know, yeah. we're going for it right here, even though there was nobody out. But I just felt there's no way Tulowitzki's going to catch that ball, spin, and throw to, throw somebody throw Kane out at home plate in that situation. Yeah, yeah, it really wasn't that close. I mean, Kane Kane slid obviously, and, and I always think of that. Uh, you know, after he slid and he kind of jumped up and he's punching the air. That was the cover of the next Sports Illustrated. I always think of that yeah when when you're talking to guys about again about scoring from first on a single um were they thinking like oh hell yeah let's do this or was it like you're crazy this isn't gonna work what what was the well i think i think in kane's mind right away there he said i'm busting it because there's a chance of you know 
Bautista yeah. bobbles that ball or drops it, you know, picks it up and drops it or whatever. He, he knew he had a chance to score, you yeah, know. And, right. And that's the, that's the main thing you really try to instill in these guys is their mind is that you just keep busting it and then let us make the decision on whether you're going to go or not. Yeah, and that group in particular, you didn't have a lot of problems with them. With them no. busting it, right? The, no. Like, what is your part of this play? Like, when it's over, is your heart pumping? Are you so locked in in the moment that it doesn't hit you? What What are you feeling right there? Well, there's no doubt out. My heart was pumping after he scored because I was so excited. We took that lead, and you know, we had Wade Davis coming in to hopefully close it out, and and he made it exciting too. But he ended up getting <laughs> it done. <laughs> but anytime you have a play like that where you send a guy like that, you're happy as ever when, you know, he does make it. And of course, you're disappointed and maybe pissed at yourself if you send him and he gets thrown out. But yeah. I, to me, that's just the way you got to be. And I think that's the way this team was that, you know, in, in 14 and 15, you know, we lost in 14, but 15, both those years, I mean, we got thrown out sometimes at bases or trying mm-hmm. to take that extra base, but that's just the way we played. We we were a team that wanted to put pressure on the defense, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I mean, you look at you look at against New York when Haas went, you know, from third base went to home, yeah. you know, and that's pretty much his read on his own. But they knew, you know, the first base, you know, Duda had to rush to throw, and he threw it away. Yeah. You know, whereas if he'd have taken his time and thrown it, he probably would have thrown him out by 10 feet. But yeah. by putting that added pressure on and the defense not knowing exactly where he is and just knowing he's going, he rushes it and they throw it away. And that's what happens. Yeah. And like I said, sometimes you get burnt and sometimes you're all right. <laughs> you know, you make make the play. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was probably going to ask you about this, but um, how how long – after that play, did it take for the first person to reference you not getting Gordon thrown out by a thousand feet the, the year before? <laughs> oh, I still hear it to this day, but you know what, Sam? I, and that doesn't even bother me because I laugh about it because yeah. anybody that has any knowledge in baseball, you know, and I've talked to a lot of third base coaches that, that following year and, I even talked to Crawford, you know, and guys like that. There, they bring it up, and they said, "Jersh, you made the right call. There's no <laughs> way you could." Have. And and I felt that way, you know, yeah. and I felt that way all winter long. It, I never even thought about it, you know, as yeah. being a a big deal. But then next spring it comes up, and they're talking about it yet. Why, you know, you should have sent yeah. Gordon and this and that. And I, nah, that doesn't that didn't even bother me. And you know what? We're all human, you know. You make mistakes. I, I, sure. I truly don't believe that was even close to being a mistake. I thought that was a, a no-brainer. I got to stop him here. Yeah. It, it's, just, it's just striking to me that, that two years in a row, um, you know, the third base coach is such a big part of it, you know, and, and you got both the decisions right. I don't think there's many, if any, people that would, that would really disagree with that. But um, it, it's just wild. I, I remember um, – I think I've told you this, but I remember – after game seven, um, you know, against the Giants in 14, mm-hmm. you know, just typing furiously and just looking at Andy and just saying, like, Gordon would have been out by a mile, right? And he was like, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just going back to work. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. Get that out of my head just to make sure somebody else saw it. So. Yeah. Um, and I used to, I always gave Selby about that. I said, Selby, why don't you take the pressure off me and just get a base hit there? Nobody would even thought of that. <laughs> exactly. Hold their mouth. Exactly. Exactly. You exactly. know, it's funny in those situations, too, even though. He would have been thrown. I mean, I think we would have ended the World Series in a rundown. He would have been out by that much. Yeah. You know, even if that throw was five to ten feet off, he would have been able to catch it and come back and tag him. Because, Gordo, you know, and I think that's where sometimes people get fooled because Gordo's such a good left fielder that he doesn't run that good. Right. He's not real fast around right. those bases, you know. Yeah. And, and plus, he ran all the way from home plate there. Starting, yeah. not starting right away, full speed, but then getting out there, then taking off, then all of a sudden something else happens, then he starts running hard again. By the yeah. time he got to third base, I mean he was yeah, breathing he pretty hard when it, when I stopped him. Yeah. Do Do you think if he's running as hard as he can out of the box, do you think he could have scored? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he would have made my call a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, and it's amazing where you, you have plays like that. And, you know, people don't look at where he was when Crawford already secured the ball. You know, he was just touching third base. And I asked Crawford the next spring, or I told Crawford the next spring, I said, why don't you just throw that ball, like throw a P right to home plate right there, <laughs> just which he would have done. <laughs> and he smiles at me and he goes, Jerk. I was waiting for you to send them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Special thanks to Mike Jersley for giving us the time and, and the conversation going back to that moment five years ago. Very, very special thanks to Savannah Smith, who always does almost all the work on the show. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys listen again next week. Again, if you want to participate, 816-234-4365. 816-234-4365. All right, have a good weekend.